Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Crystal, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program, Genomics and Genetics, What is the Difference? And today's program is a, it's a topic that actually many of you have asked questions about, and we thought we would do a program so it, you'd have greater clarity about these, these concepts. Um, today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations, and it really is because of that collaboration and your interest in this topic today, and really sometimes you're wondering what all these top words mean, um, that we have on the call today over 463 participants, and you come from all over the United States. And we also have international participants from Australia, Canada, Germany, India, and the United Kingdom. So really, um, it's, a, it's really a bit of a global call as well. Um, today's program is supported by Bayer Healthcare and Pfizer, and I really want to thank them for their support of the program. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I'm going to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Mark Chris. Dr. Chris is attending physician, thoracic oncology service, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. He's also a professor of medicine while at Cornell Medical College. And Dr. Chris is going to begin, really, by providing a definition of genetics and genomics um, and understanding types of gene mutations the importance of genetic and genomic testing, and their role in selecting your cancer treatment. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Chris. Um, you know, I think all of us in the uh, medical field are both excited and humbled uh, by the, um, I'll call it the genomic revolution that we've, we've witnessed uh, in the last uh, two decades. Um, I know many of you may have heard this term precision medicine, but the precision part of precision medicine very largely comes from uh, an analysis of the, the DNA of tumors and of the, the DNA of each uh, person that has a cancer, and that through the analyzing the DNA, uh, we are able to very precisely characterize both the individual and, and the cancer uh, in an individual, and this has led to a dramatic um, change in, in how we treat uh, virtually all patients now with, with cancers. Now, along with it uh, has come a uh, need for uh, a much greater understanding of what for uh, many of us is indeed uh, basic uh, biology. Um, when, uh, forgive uh, the anecdote, but when I trained as a physician, there was no such thing as molecular biology or molecular or, or genomics. There was genetics, and that term is a study of heredity, uh, how individual traits are passed down. Uh, but DNA was something you learned about in biochemistry class. There was no uh, discussion, no classes at all about molecular biology and how that would play. So uh, we've all had to learn along the way, and we're, we're happy to share that with you. Uh, I would ask you never to feel um, uh, dumb by not knowing this, because uh, particularly if your doctor has some gray hair, your, your doctor had to learn it too, so uh, there's nothing to be ashamed of there. 
just just a quick um, mention about uh, biology, and I don't want to spend too much time on this, um, but the um, the genetics more than anything else have to do with DNA. But but why is DNA important? All the tissues in the body do uh, amazing things. You know, the heart pumps, the liver makes all kinds of of substances that sustain us, um, and uh, other. The, the lungs bring oxygen into us. But they do that by the action of very specific proteins. Uh, and proteins are made from amino acids, and there are really only uh, 20 or so amino acids. And it's just how they're arranged, their order, who's next to whom, who's across from whom, that make all these different uh, tissues uh, that we have. How are proteins created? They're created in the cells of the body, and they're created from uh, blueprints. Um, just like a, uh, an architecture firm would have a master blueprint and would then create a, a blueprint that would be taken to the job site uh, and be translated into the building that they're creating, uh, our cells are the same way. That master blueprint for all of our tissues in the body is the DNA, and it boils down more than anything else to the sequence of uh, various chemicals in that DNA stru uh, structure. That sequence is then translated to an intermediate form, so-called RNA, and that RNA is what ultimately is being translated into protein. So knowing the DNA tells us the, um, is the blueprint upon which all the proteins and all the tissues of the body are, are created. Um, genomics is the study of the DNA uh, and how the, uh, the uh, DNA is, is arranged uh, and the signals that result from that, from that DNA. Um, the, the net result, though, of uh, knowing about the DNA as it relates to cancer is that uh, in normally when you have DNA and it's, it's doing what it should do, it creates our liver, it creates our heart, it creates our kidneys. But when the DNA is damaged, it can then lead to uh, the creation of uh, other kinds of proteins, not the normal ones, but ones that result from damaged DNA. And those proteins are ones that, uh, number one, might not be functional, and number two, may cause some kind of function that is deleterious to us. And that, in, is in many ways, is, is how cancer happens. The DNA gets damaged. Proteins that should be there aren't. Uh, proteins that um, uh, new ones are created that do their own mischief. So by understanding the DNA, it understands those, those faulty, faulty proteins. And I'll, I'll get back to that in a minute as to how that uh, parlays into um, your, your doctor's uh, analysis of this. It's very, very important to know that there are two types of mutations. Mutations are damage to the DNA that leads to these faulty proteins. The one we deal with most commonly in oncology is something called a somatic mutation or a sporadic mutation. This is something that happens only in the cancer. The DNA in the normal tissues of the body is fine. The DNA in the cancerous tissue is damaged. And that damage causes the, causes the growth of the cancer and understanding that. This is in contrast to DNA damage within our own bodily tissues. That's so-called germline DNA. Um, 
in general, though, when we're talking in oncology and in the tumor, it's somatic uh, mutations that lead to changes in the cancer uh, and all the effects therein. There's going to be a talk shortly about germline DNA. I'm not talking about that. The other very important thing about damage in the cancer, the somatic DNA, it cannot be passed on to your offspring. So for the vast majority of cancers or, or cancers, there it is the DNA damage cannot be passed on. I know that's a great concern to many patients that they can pass this on. How do we get this DNA to analyze it? So in, in uh, 2018, the vast majority of the DNA that's used in our uh, analysis of common cancers comes from tissues. So first and foremost, you have to have a tissue biopsy, uh, and uh, that biopsy then gets analyzed. Who analyzes that tissue? It's to a great extent analyzed by uh, specialized uh, physicians and scientists in the pathology departments. There's now a whole new uh, body and team of uh, professionals, generally within pathology departments, that they devote their careers to developing tests to uh, precisely analyze this DNA that comes from human tissue. Another part of that, too, is that when you have a biopsy done, uh, it is absolutely essential nowadays that in addition to getting the tissue that the pathologist uses to determine whether or not cancer is present, you also need sufficient tissue for these genetic analyses, these DNA tests. The, um, there is a growing uh, ability because of the precision of the test to be able to do these tests from blood. Germline DNA, again, analyzing the DNA, chain, uh, DNA structure in normal tissues, that can be done from, from the blood. Uh, there is a tiny amount of DNA from the cancer cells in blood, and that can be answer, uh, this can be analyzed too. So today, to do these DNA tests, you need to, to have tissue. Uh, and going forward, uh, we're going to be able to do these DNA tests in blood, uh, and already the germline DNA tests are blood. This is not at all unlike the uh, testing for DNA now done uh, in, uh, in pregnancy. Uh, you may remember there used to be this very tough test called an amniocentesis to get sufficient tissue, to get sufficient DNA to see whether or not certain genetic diseases are present in the fetus. These tests now can be done from the fetal DNA that finds its way into the mother's blood. Uh, very similar now in oncology. Why is this so important? Well, when you find these broken genes, very often you can find characteristics of the cancer cells that impart a vulnerability. So uh, a, a common gene that studied the EGFR gene, when that gene is damaged, what happens is instead of uh, the uh, EGFR receptor turning off, it, it just stays on all the time. And because of that mutation, the EGFR gene stays on and it, it drives cancer. It gives a vulnerability, though, because if you can give a drug that turns that off, the cancer cells that depend on that gene signal to survive, uh, they have that signal no more and they die. There are many other examples of this, and I think the subsequent speakers are going to be talking about it. So uh, it's a uh, time of a great expansion of knowledge in oncology. It brings in much more uh, opportunities to treat cancers. 
it because you're focusing in on a specific damage in a specific cancer and only in the cancer cells, it leads to therapies that are more what we are looking for, those that kill the cancer and do less harm to normal people. Um, we're learning every day about this. Your doctor is learning. You need to learn as well. Uh, and, and I encourage you to, to stick with it, ask questions, uh, and hopefully uh, – by the end of uh, all of our talks today, you'll have some more information, but the job won't be done. Uh, don't be afraid to ask questions and learn more. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Chris. That was really wonderful. And you really set the stage for the whole program today, so thank you very much for doing that and really for making the complex more understandable to everybody and giving everyone permission to ask questions that they don't have to know everything and that, they're, um, that everyone's learning about this. So thank you so much for doing that. And our next speaker is Dr. Raul Tibbes, and Dr. Tibbes is Director of Clinical Leukemia Program, Laura and Isaac Promata Cancer Center, Associate Professor, NYU School of Medicine, and Scholar in Clinical Research, Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, NYU Langone Health. And Dr. Tibbes is going to present examples of how genomic testing informs your treatment plan, current research in genomics, and how genomic testing impacts your cancer treatment. It's really now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Tibbis. Yeah, <clears throat> hello everybody. Um, thank you very much for this excellent introduction. I was, I was listening, it was a very clear introduction. And I want to build on that and um, give you a couple of examples. In the older days, or a couple of years, or even five to ten years ago, we were often assessing um, tumors and cancers a lot by the clinical information. And genetics and genomics essentially now allows more and more to essentially profile and take a better and deeper look at a particular tumor with the goal of finding what's really wrong in the DNA and all the, the, the functional consequences that these changes in the DNA actually has on the growth of those tumor cells. And when we know more about it, so we have more knowledge about the genetics and genomics of a cancer cell, we can develop better treatments um, against a certain cancer. And as you can imagine, not uh, you have cancer in the breast, in, in, in your colon, lung, brain, so they all are different cancers. So not every cancer has the same genetic or genomic um, changes and abnormalities. What I explain to my patients often, and I start in a way very basic because I think it's important that patients do understand the differences, at least have an idea about the terminology. We heard about chromosomes. So we, first of all, we know what genes are. Genes are, it's, it's a, everybody knows what a gene is, but the genes that sit on the chromosomes. And if you remember from the basic biology, we have 23 chromosomes from your father and 23 from your mother. So every cell in a, in a patient's or in a human body has 46 or ideally 46 chromosomes. So genes sit on those chromosomes. So now you can have a mutation in a gene, and a mutation can either switch a gene on or turn it off. So if the gene is switched on, the gene is more active. And cancers usually grow faster than the normal tissues, that's why they expand more and push away the normal tissue. But you also have genes that when they're mutated, so a mutation in a gene, those genes are switched off. So there are also genes that are breaks on cell growth. And those genes sit on the chromosomes. So sometimes in tumors, there are pieces or certain stretches, either short stretches or an entire chromosome or arms or pieces of a chromosome either missing. And you can imagine there are many genes on those chromosomes that all of a sudden are missing or too many of those chromosomes or just parts of a chromosome. We call this amplification. 
So you can imagine there are too many genes from a certain type. This can also drive, um, or sometimes explain it, this is the fuel, as if, if, as if you have fuel putting on an open flame or on a fire, so that you know, makes a bigger flame, so to speak. Um, so we physicians talk in mutations in genes, but we also talk about chromosomes or amplifications, too many chromosomes or parts of a chromosomes, or deletions, so missing parts of chromosomes, or rearrangements. So when two chromosomes that shouldn't be next to each other are all of a sudden flipped around and now are close to each other, so they can you know, fuel the bad growth in cancer cells. There's also a couple of concepts that explain my patient, but I will probably skip this for now. There's also modifications of those genes and the DNA. We call this epigenetic, and we can ask questions later on. And of course, what I'm also getting more and more is the question, how, how does the immune system influence the genetics and genomics? So the immune cells are constantly surveying our body, and they eliminate cells that have abnormal DNA. And sometimes the immune cells are no longer able to do that, and then that's one of the aspects when cancer can happen and arise. So a couple of examples. Um, Dr. Chris mentioned um, uh, mutations in the EGFR gene in lung cancer. Probably the most or one of the earliest examples was that gene HER2NU. That's an amplification, so HER2NU in breast cancer. And now we have drugs like Herceptin that have really make a difference. So here's an example of an amplification, too much of this gene on a chromosome. We have mutations, for example, in BRAF in melanoma. We also find mutations in BRAF in lung cancers. So it's not, so in the, in the genomic era, um, different tumor types can have the same mutations to a point that we sometimes say we're not treating tumor types anymore, but we're treating genetic or genomic abnormalities in tumors. So the same drug can work in two different tumor types, in melanoma or in lung cancer, for example. Other examples, um, I think it's important we come to that in the genetic counseling later on, is, for example, the BRCA or the breast cancer uh, gene mutations that can predispose patients to developing breast cancer and ovarian cancer. But what we learned over the last couple of years and decades is that sometimes we can also use what helps a normal cell to become a cancer cell. This is also what I call the Achilles heel. So breast cancer or the BRCA mutations, they're the so-called PARP inhibitors. So essentially researchers were able to find a way to use that breast cancer gene and if they knock out or inhibit or treat with a medication, the PARP inhibitors, a complementary or parallel pathway of this BRCA gene, they can completely take it out. Um, for my patients, I see a lot of leukemia patients, I also explain to them the cytogenetics. The cytogenetics is essentially the study of the chromosomes. So I sit with my patients and tell them which of the chromosome are too many chromosomes, which chromosome is missing, because that can also inform our, our treatment, what we choose. So the patient have just chemotherapy and can be cured with chemotherapy. Does the patient need a stem cell or bone marrow transplantation? There are also now therapies where we don't use any chemotherapy anymore for a certain subtype of leukemia called acute promyelocytic leukemia, so where we have a translocation, so two chromosomes flip together and they shouldn't be close to each other. So there are a couple of examples um, just, just to give you an overview. I think what's important also to note is that um, in addition to having new medications available, we also need the diagnostic tests. 
often we call them, or they're called by the FDA also, companion diagnostics. So with the understanding of a genomic abnormality in a cancer cell, we want to measure what's wrong in that cancer cell and very specific. So we need a very good, reliable test that always shows us this is positive. If the test was only good in 50 or 60% of the patients, we wouldn't find all the patients. So the better the validity and the more robust, meaning the more precise a test can always detect that something is wrong in a certain cancer, the better the test. And with those tests or with the drug development now, hitting, targeting, taking out specific genes or mutations in genes, um, those companion diagnostic tests together with a drug or medication are often um, developed together. So they go hand in hand. So how can we make advances in the current research in genomics? Um, a couple of minutes. So now we're going beyond understanding muta mutations and genomic abnormalities. So what's happening in the next couple of years and decades is we're taking a deeper and deeper look into the genome and into the genetics, both how cancer happens first and how we can treat the genomic abnormalities that we see in cancer cells. So we're really looking deeper and deeper in the second, third, or fourth level now. I sometimes explain it to my patients in two ways. It's like Google. We have a lot of information and almost more information than we can make sense and find the content in that information. So now we have all the letters together, and now we need to write words, write sentences, form book chapters out of all the letters we know about the DNA. Um, or if you imagine a telescope, so an old telescope, you could see the moon, there may be some craters, but now we're looking with more higher resolution telescope and we see more details and we can look actually with more sophisticated tests, can we look at the functional consequences? So it's not just the DNA and mutations or what do the chromosomes do, but what are the consequences on a functional biological level inside the cell that give the cell an advantage to become a cancer cell? So that understanding is where we're going now with more sophisticated research. And to finish up in two or three minutes is um, how, what's the impact um, of, of your cancer treatment? So I also tell my patients, because the question comes up, is it contagious? It's, if it's a somatic mutation, which is only found in the cancer cells, I tell my patients, it's not in all your other body cells. It's truly just those leukemia cells have found a way to to maintain or acquire mutation, switch on these genes uh, or a particular gene, and that gives them the ability to grow faster than the normal blood cells. So it's not contagious for the most cancers. Um, then the other question we can use those tests are, am I predisposed? And I think we'll hear a little bit more about this in the, in the next session. But it's also important um, to test if a patient may have a higher chance of responding to a particular treatment. So we call this a predictive test. So if, I, if my cancer has this mutation or a certain number or group of mutations, what's the chance that I may respond better to drug A versus drug B? So that's very important and we're learning more and more. And one goal is also the more specific we are, hopefully the more side effects we can avoid. So not just giving chemotherapy, but really like very precise targeted taking out this one gene that drives and fuels the cancer. And, um, or we can use this in patients for after breast cancer or some other cancers, should I get additional treatment after my surgery? So it's also those, those gene panels. So I had a surgery, 
what's the role of giving me additional chemotherapy or hormone therapy for prostate cancer, breast cancer, what's the likely, likelihood of, of reducing my risk that the cancer comes back if I take another couple of years of treatment. But I should mention to finish up is that there are limitations to those tests. So what we call it, um, we, in a way we know more than we can make at the present stage sense of. We have learned tremendously and it's a really, although sad sometimes, it's a really, uh, in a way it's an, it's an optimistic time in oncology because drugs are being approved based on our molecular understanding almost on a weekly basis and we can now help patients. And that's, that's a positive, but we need to learn much more because there's still many patients we cannot always help. There are limitations in, in our, our current knowledge. So we have to find more drugs that can hit those genetic and genomic abnormalities in cancer cells. So the drug development and understanding and learning more is very important. That's why we need samples for it. And that's why you will be asked by your doctor to have an extra biopsy done of your tumor because that's, that's the only way really to learn more what happens before and after and during treatment. And if a treatment works or even if a treatment doesn't work, we have to understand why it works and why it doesn't work. We can't do this in mouse models or in the laboratory. It has to be done with the patients because the cancer and the humans are so much more complex than our simple models in the, in the laboratory. And um, yeah, with the, so I would say with the genomic knowledge and um, developing tests, developing, becoming more and more sophisticated in understanding what those genomic abnormalities mean, and then developing the drugs, and then working hand in hand academia with the pharmaceuticals, the FDA and the patients, can we accelerate our cancer treatments? And I think we will see, I sometimes say, we will see the, the second genomic error and the improvements in treatments the next couple of uh, decades and years and decades. And I'm very grateful that I can be part of it. So thank you very much. I will pass it on to the next speaker. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Tibbs. That was really outstanding, really. Um, uh, a lot of wonderful information um, for everyone to absorb and, um, and to learn about, um, really important. Um, and I think that um, really exemplifies the, the, cha the transformation, actually, in the treatment of cancer to some extent, but really very, very well spoken. So thank you so much, Dr. Tibbs. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And our next speaker is uh, Dr. Um, Stuart Fleischman. Dr. Fleischman is former founding director of Cancer Support Services, Continuum Cancer Centers of New York, and he's author, researcher in oncology. And Dr. Fleischman is going to be presenting on the role of the pathologist, the value of early testing, and key questions to ask, ask your healthcare team about genetic and genomic testing. So it's now my great pleasure to turn the program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Fleischman. Thank you, Dr. Messner. Um, I'm here today to uh, remind us all about two of the unsung heroes in uh, our cancer treatment teams. Uh, sometimes we meet our radiologists while we're getting scans, but we rarely ever meet our pathologists, and especially in cancer treatment, the pathologist is such, such an important person in the team. Um, up until the, these last few years, as Dr. Chris has explained, pathologists had a much more a limited number of things they were able to do. They would uh, actually make slides of the uh, cancer, the tumor and the normal tissue around it out of the biopsies, out of the samples that were taken either um, on their own or, or during cancer treatment. They'd make really thin pieces of them so they could look at them using either a light microscope 
or an electron microscope, and um, they would give us an a learned, very learned opinion about is this cancer or not by the way it looked, by the cell's appearance. Um, and they could give a number of details about that description in a very um, specialized way. It was very important for us to get lots of information from the pathologist to the point where a number of years ago, maybe 10, 15 years ago, the College of American Pathology has now put out a list of the required data elements, the common points that need to be in every biopsy report. Um, in addition, for us non-pathologists, we greatly appreciate the fact that there is a synopsis or a synoptic report, or I like to call them monarch notes or cliff notes, about the um, biopsy results so we can get all that information in a very clear and crisp and efficient way. Um, and um, accredited cancer centers all need to um, follow the rules set out by the College of American Pathology. But now we're in this new era, which is so unbelievably um, uh, amazing from the science point of view, because now the pathologist is not only able to look at the cell's appearance, but actually able to look at the makeup of the cell to a much greater extent than they ever had before. Um, and um, as you heard, there are so many other facts that can be found out, the genetic sequencing, uh, the, genetics, the genetic effect on the growth pattern of the cancer, or even a variety of proteins that are made by the cancer or sit on the surface of the cancer cell and how that can affect the, the cancer cells by making them more aggressive or less aggressive, for example. And there are many other parameters that the pathologist can, can uh, work on. So there are many better tools that we have now to um, direct treatment decisions with your treatment team. Um, the pathologist now can give us a better opinion about things that we all want to know. Is this slow growing or is this a quick growing cancer that needs immediate attention? How aggressive is this type of cancer? Um, are, is it the cancer itself, the cells itself, or is it the proteins that the cancer makes that are responsible for a number of the problems that come along with cancer? In particular, um, people in the forefront of research believe that certain uh, pain syndromes or the amount of fatigue we have from cancer is really owed to, in part, uh, these proteins. So it would be really good for all of us to understand from the pathologist's point of view with all these new um, techniques exactly um, what's ha what, what information can be gleaned from the biopsy report. So for the first time, the pathologist can now look at the, the structure of the cells and the functioning of the cells, which is really, really helpful. And as the previous speaker said, we're all learning about this, and the, um, the science is changing rather quickly, and we all need to stay, um, we all need to stay alert about the newest things that are happening. This brings up many, many other issues, because the light microscopes of the past are no longer the best instrument to use, and a number of um, techniques are being developed. And as Dr. Chris said, we need to understand that these are accurate. We need to understand that uh, it, it, it finds what it finds, and it's reliable, that it can be uh, replicated from one uh, lab to another across the country. Um, and pathologists are having greater and greater input in the kinds of 
instrumentation and the kinds of techniques that they they're using to, that will they will be using to give this information. Uh, often um, the, on the traditional biopsy slide, there were some dyes that were used or um, chemical reactions that were were useful to to show the different different colors or um, highlight different parts of the cells. And this has taken off, <laughs> and will take off in the future with a lot of the new technology. So um, the pathologist now is put in a position of having a much even more important. Um, a position on the cancer treatment team, which is really answer our, one of our most important questions. Is this a fast-growing cancer? Is it slower? And then help the team develop the treatment based upon those sorts of questions. It is really um, a, a phenomenal thing that's happening in the way cancer treatment is given um, for now and for the future. So, uh, we really need to give a shout out to our pathologists because uh, the, the, their information input is really ever so more important. So one of the things that um, we would hope you carry away from this call, apart from um, a primer on genomics and genetics, is um, asking questions and knowing why an early decision about uh, the influence of genomics or genetics on your cancer may actually direct its care. So uh, as the prior speaker said before, additional tissue is often needed. Um, those of us who have had biopsies before know that they can be taken in different ways. Sometimes a confirmatory biopsy is taken from a fine needle aspiration or skinny needle, as we sometimes call it, and often that does not give enough tissue. There are other types of biopsy needles uh, called core biopsies that, that are able to pull more tissue uh, out, of, um, out of a lesion, but that may not be enough. So from the start, the treatment team needs to make sure that whoever is um, doing the biopsy has an idea about the kind of testing that is being done and will need to be done to make sure that the um, sample is adequate. And I, I guess apart from the really interesting scientific details about genomics and genetics, that's one of the practical take-home messages here, that um, enough of a tissue has to be taken, and it is fair game to ask uh, on the initial consultation with an oncologist to make sure that enough, tr enough tissue is being taken to look at the um, genomics of the situation and uh, genetics where it's applicable. So we now have not only the surgical intervention, we have the chemotherapeutic intervention of the usual uh, cell, uh, um, uh, the usual types of chemotherapy that kill cells. We have the radiation therapy, hormonal treatments, and now we add on top of that this whole uh, array of treatments that are designed to uh, get to the either the genetics of the cell or the proteins on the cell or the proteins that the cancer produces. Um, and it's really important to make sure that all those are taken into account when a diagnosis is given, when a treatment plan is being made. Um, and often in the cancer world, as people who have been on, these, uh, on other calls know, that we always um, uh, we, we always uh, seek second opinions wherever possible to make sure that the message you're getting is um, the most advanced and the best one for you and your situation. So I think I'll stop there, and I, I hope the details of the 
science here, the genomics and the genetics is also balanced out with the practical message of making sure that whoever you're seeing first for cancer takes all these things into account um, at the time the biopsy is done. I turn it back to Dr. Messner. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Fleischman. That was really wonderful, and actually, um, and the call out to the pathologists, how important they are, that you can actually speak to them if you wish to, and also um, just the whole issue of testing and the communication piece. So definitely, um, there'll be definitely questions for you during the Q&A as well. And our next speaker is Ms. Nicole Birch, and Ms. Birch is a certified genetic counselor. She's with the Department of Genomics, Mayo Clinic. And Ms. Birch is going to address the role of a certified genetic counselor, which I know many of you are interested to know more about, the difference between inherited and acquired or sporadic gene mutations, deciding to have genetic testing, and with whom do you wish to share your test results. So um, with that all being said, I'm going to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, uh, Ms. Birch. Thank you, Dr. Messner, for that introduction and for inviting me to be on this call today. First thing I would like to continue to address that our previous speakers have done a really good job of um, is the difference between inherited and acquired or sporadic gene mutations. I'm just going to build on that a little bit and then I'll switch over to talking about the role of the genetic counselor. So every human being has a risk for cancer, you know, if they're living on planet Earth, just because the process of accumulating somatic or sporadic gene mutations is very common and happens to every human being. Our bodies do have kind of spell checking methods in place so that if they sense any DNA damage that, that happens, they can repair it. But those, do, those mechanisms do tend to break down over time. Um, we've talked a little bit about the immune system not detecting um, damage or cancer cells growing. But most cancer really is due to these accumulation of somatic mutations that are not inherited. And I think that's a very important point um, that, again, most cancers, when you find mutations in them, you expect to see those because that's just kind of the unique signature that cancers have, but these mutations are typically not inherited. In a subset of individuals who develop cancer, however, around 10 to 15 percent of them, we identify a hereditary predisposition to cancer. And what that means is that genetic testing um, from a blood sample basically spell checks someone's inherited DNA, so not looking at the cancer DNA, but the DNA that they were born with. This is the DNA that you get um, half from each of your parents for a complete set of chromosomes and genes. And essentially, genetic testing can spell check that and ask, you know, are there any mutations in this set of DNA that could explain why someone went on to get cancer? And these kinds of mutations are the ones that are inherited because it's in the DNA you receive from your parents. That would be in every cell of your body, including egg and sperm cells, that then you could have passed on to children. So the role of a genetic counselor, um, I think, is complex because not only do we want to care for the patient in front of us, but also their family members. So a, the role of a genetic counselor is to essentially help identify individuals or families who are most likely to potentially have a hereditary gene mutation that is predisposing them to develop cancer. Um, this process is mainly done via genetic testing, where essentially you're spell checking someone's inherited DNA. Um, and again, we're not checking for the accumulated mutations with this type of testing. Genetic counselors are trained to also take very detailed family histories and perform uh, risk assessments to determine for whom genetic testing may be most appropriate and beneficial. 
when we're taking a family history and doing a risk assessment, there are some kind of red flags or clues that we, that we look for um, in a personal or family history that may make us um, think of an inherited gene mutation um, as the root cause of some of the cancers. So one of those is being a younger age of onset of cancer. We use the age of 50 years as kind of a rough cutoff between young and old. It's not hard and fast, but we are more concerned about a hereditary predisposition to cancer, say, in a woman who gets breast cancer in her 30s versus someone who gets it in their 60s or 70s. Um, we're also more suspicious of a potential hereditary predisposition if people are getting multiple brand new cancers over their lifetime. So not a cancer that starts and then spreads to another organ, but multiple brand new cancers. So say someone gets breast cancer in their 40s and then later gets ovarian cancer in their 60s, we start to think, you know, that's a little more cancer than we would typically expect if this person was just you know, accumulating somatic mutations over their lifetime, we're, you know, we're kind of wondering, could there be an underlying kind of predisposition that they were born with? Um, the other thing that we typically see in a family history is a pattern of cancers in um, each generation. So uh, a grandparent getting cancer and then some of their kids getting it, and then the third generation are the, some of the grandkids also getting it. So we see this kind of vertical uh, transmission or, or pattern of, of cancer. And then you know, that pattern in the family history combined with younger ages of onset, typically with them we start to, you know, think about or at least recommend thinking about um, doing genetic testing. So, again, genetic testing involves a blood draw, and I have a lot of patients say, you know, if it's just a blood draw, why can't you just order it? And, it's, you know, I wish it were that simple, so, you know, the test itself is easy enough to get the DNA, but there are a lot of kind of potential implications um, of genetic testing, and you know, pros and cons and limitations that we really like to inform patients about beforehand. Um, you know, some of the potential benefits of genetic testing can be to identify a risk for cancer that can then help them be more proactive with their health care. So before they ever get cancer, if they learn that they could have a higher risk than the average person for, say, breast cancer, they could start doing mammograms at an earlier age or adding in um, MRIs in addition to that, whereas the average woman, you know, wouldn't really think about uh, doing that. So again, it's just an example of how we can be more proactive. But on the other hand, sometimes we identify a hereditary predisposition to a type of cancer that we don't have good screening for right now. So take pancreatic cancer, for example. That's one where right now um, there are no kind of standardized guidelines or um, uh, protocols for screening for that type of cancer. So even if we identify a hereditary risk factor, we're not always able to be maybe as proactive as we would like. But on the other hand, you know, then at least patients can be aware and kind of get connected to the experts um, who are developing those screening protocols. Um, and as other speakers have already alluded to, we're not able to, you know, interpret or understand all that our genes tell us, you know, whether they're somatic or germline. And so some patients can come back with uncertain genetic test results where we identify a variant in a gene that we literally at this time don't know what it means. We don't know if it's causing that gene to not work correctly and could therefore be increasing their risk for cancer, or it could just be a variant that's making them a unique human being. You know, everyone has some variation in their DNA, and um, we don't always kind of know whether a change is really just related to that fact or could be relating to the risk for cancer. And there's also potential concern for genetic information, including genetic test results, to be used um, in a discriminatory manner. So um, thinking about life insurance, long-term care, those sorts of things. So. Those are all things we try to cover prior to um, genetic testing just to help patients make the best decision for themselves. And then on the back end, if we do identify a um, germline gene mutation that could you know, also be in the DNA of family members, um, I do try to help patients uh, 
facilitate sharing that information. Um, we say definitely share with you know the close relatives, parents, siblings, children. But then obviously you still share DNA with aunts, uncles, cousins, and even beyond that. So you know I've had patients kind of reach out via Facebook, social media, using those um, mediums, or even family reunions. I'll give them a letter that's you know just saying here's what testing I had, here's what it could mean for you. You know go call Nicole or something like that. So just kind of help get that information out because this can make a really big difference for a family member. Again, we can identify a risk factor ahead of time and, you know, manage them appropriately to prevent uh, cancer or, or catch it early. So we would encourage patients to share their test results with as many family members um, as possible. Um, and the last thing I would say just to wrap up is genetic testing has come a long way. Um, even in the past five years, the testing that I'm offering is very different than what I was then. So I would encourage, you know, people who are listening in, if you never had genetic testing and, you know, maybe your family or personal history, some of those risk factors I talked about are things we think of, you know, talk to your doctor about getting in touch with a genetic counselor. But even if you've already seen one, you know, maybe five, ten years ago, you had testing, maybe something was found, it wasn't. But, you know, testing options have changed, so I would encourage you to kind of maybe recontact that genetic counselor or, or doctor that you saw and ask about new options because they're constantly changing. Um, there is a website through the National Society of Genetic Counselors, nsgc.org, where you can put in your zip code and a list of genetic counselors in your area um, can come up. So I would encourage you, even if you've had genetic testing in the past, those five, ten years ago, I think revisiting the option would be um, uh, definitely on the table. Uh, so thank you so much. I know that was quick. Happy to take questions. Oh, thank you so much, um, Ms. Bruce. That was really outstanding and just excellent, on, I have to say. Um, Oh, thank you so much. And um, we're going to go right to questions now because I know there are a lot of questions, and um, and I'll do a bit of a wrap up at the end. So we'll we'll move on to questions. And um, so I'm going to ask uh, Crystal because really the, all these presentations have been so informative, and I, I know you must have their questions hot off the press. I can see them coming in. So um, so I'm going to ask um, Crystal to explain how to queue up the questions. We're going to take as many of your questions as possible. And uh, if we don't get your questions at the end, I'll explain to you how to get your questions answered. So, okay, Crystal. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. If you would like to ask a question, please press the star then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And again, ladies and gentlemen, that is star one to ask a question. Um, actually, um, question actually for Dr. Um, um, Chris, a uh, question for our online participants. Um, what is the MSK dash impact? Can anyone take the test? Oh, look, I guess that one's for me. Um, yes, sir. <laughs> so um, so um, th there is a um, type of uh, gene testing system called next generation sequencing. It's based on um, uh, very uh, powerful uh, machines that can analyze uh, the DNA uh, and can analyze the presence or absence of DNA damage in hundreds of genes all at the same time uh, in uh, a, a two-week period. Um, it's really an amazing development, and that is how a huge amount of the testing uh, for specific mutations is, is done today. One of the uh, types of test is called MSK Impact. Um, it's, uh, it's gotten some play because it's been around for a while. Uh, it's been uh, 
reviewed by the FDA, and they felt that it's a very good test. Um, it is a test, however, for patients at MSK. For various reasons, it's done here for Morris lung catering patients. Now, there are many other versions of the test available, um, uh, but a, there's a, um, a number of companies. Uh, another example would be Foundation Medicine in, in Boston that does a very similar type of test. So MSK Impact is a test specific to Morris lung catering patients. However, an equivalent tests are available to um, patients all over the country and all over the world. And it generally involves uh, uh, obtaining a specimen of tissue, sending it to the laboratory uh, for the um, analysis of uh, approximately three to 500 genes that have some relevance to cancer. Oh, excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you. And we have a telephone question. Um, Crystal? And they actually just removed their cells from the queue. That's not the question they really ask. Okay, <laughs> thank you. Okay, then we have um, um, a question in front of our online participants, and this is for Ms. Um, Ms. Birch. What is exactly what are exactly the techniques used for genetic testing? Um, the, the techniques are often also NGS that Dr. Chris was just talking about, since that technology allows for very rapid sequencing um, of many many genes all at once. So. That's part of the reason why at the end of my section I was advocating for, if you know, had genetic testing five, ten years ago, maybe revisit that idea because the technology itself has changed and our ability um, to look at many different genes at once in a much more detailed level has also improved. Um, there's also techniques including um, uh, MLPA or for deletion duplication, the uh, microarray techniques also for, for larger deletions or duplications. But the clinical labs that um, genetics providers orders from all kind of meet standard criteria using standard technology uh, for that type of genetic test. Excellent. Thank you. And a question um, for um, Dr. Tippis. Um, can genomic testing predict how a cancer is likely to recur and respond to treatment? Tell me how a cancer is likely to? Uh, how, so can genomic testing predict how a cancer is likely to recur and respond to treatment. Okay, no, that, that's not a very good question. Um, so, so that that varies by cancer and by test. So I didn't mention it earlier. For some, not every genetic or genomic change is a causal driver. Meaning, if we find a mutation, it does not always mean that this was the first event and the first genomic damage that now drives and fuels the cancer. So it's the, the, you know, the ancestor of or the, 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 the essential bad driver genes. So there we call them bystander or passenger mutations. So for some of the genomic information and, 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 and changes we find and we measure with the next generation sequencing or whatever test, um, some of them are the initial effectors and for some of them not. And depending where in the whole line it sits, a medication or a drug can be very effective, meaning it can work in almost every patient or in many patients. And um, if it's not such a strong driver, it may not work in every patient, just in a fraction of a patient. So that really depends on, on, on how strong that gene is involved in driving this cancer, as well as how good the medications 
are that we have. And, you know, some drugs are more potent, some are less potent. So it's really an individual decision. And generally those drugs that have some kind of benefit over what we were doing in the past, those are the ones that are FDA approved. So based on a genetic change in a cancer cell, now having a drug available and putting those two together, and if this is better what we have done in the past, that's usually how we move forward. And it can go from a little bit better to a lot better to tremendously better. So that's it really varies. It does not always predict if a cancer comes back. So um, that's another challenge or difficult part, you know, finding something if a cancer comes back. And, you know, it's there for some we have some predictive value, meaning we have an idea what the likelihood is that the cancer can come back if a cancer has these and these abnormalities or a sum or score of different abnormalities. Um, but that's really more an individual question um, for your physician, and you should discuss that. And if you, your physician can't, you know, not every physician is yet well-versed and knows everything, then you it's okay to go to get a second opinion or seek somebody out who is an expert in that field who may be involved in, in the initial development of those tests or those medications together with those tests, you know, at, at a cancer center. And you can go back to your physician, you know. It doesn't always mean you need to go somewhere else. But I think it's okay to get a second opinion, get better understanding, and then often, you know, physician at an academic center involved in developing those tests can work with your private oncologist or oncologists in the community together and, and guide you as well. So that's possible. We do this sometimes often as well. well thank you very much. Thank you. And we have a telephone question, I think, again. Um, Crystal, is that correct? Thank you. And our question comes from Shirley M. Your line is open. Hello, uh, Carolyn. I want to thank uh, Cancer Care for offering this wonderful uh, session. Um, I'm a patient advocate with the metastatic breast cancer community, and I I don't really have a question, but I just wanted to share a quick point. Uh, recently, Medicare, uh, after receiving a recommendation from the FDA, now will pay uh, for genetic genomic testing of, of tumors in metastatic patients. And since so many patients are often concerned about costs, uh, I think this is something that should be shared so that patients uh, do not hesitate asking about the test, and perhaps if their doctors are not aware that Medicare will pay, um, they can um, follow up with that. So, again, thank you for this wonderful uh, presentation. I will surely thank you for your, your, um, sharing this with everyone on the call. And um, these are very important questions about the cost of these tests and things like that. And, indeed, um, some of these tests are covered. Um, and I think, um, and also most um, of the, actually many, of these departments have staff who will actually address those questions for people. Um, in terms of the genetic testing, um, Ms. Ubersh, do you want to comment on that, just in terms of the many of them are covered by insurance, and, or do you want to comment on that? Um, typically, the genetic testing is being covered by insurance companies. Um, there are some plans that require genetic counseling up front so that they can be assured that the correct test is being ordered. But I would say cost has been coming down overall. There are patient pay options for if someone has a high deductible as, as low as $250. So typically cost is part of the conversation, but not as much of a barrier as it used to be. 
and sometimes if the cost, if that amount is difficult for people, again, usually the social work staff um, can assist with that, both at the institution, or you can contact cancer care, just kind of for creative ways to get these tests um, for you that you need, that your physicians really feel are important. Um, and then there is a question related to this um, in terms of, and I wanted to actually give this question actually to, um, to Dr. Fleischman. Um, well, it's actually not quite related, actually, but I um, will go back to this other question. But does someone who inherits a cancer predisposing mutation always get cancer? Because it's always a perception that everyone has. And do you want to comment on that, Dr. Fleischman? Um, I, I, I don't think so. I think that's better for our genetic counselor. <laughs> okay. So I'll ask. Okay, then I'll, then I'll ask Miss um, Bush if you want to comment on that. Does someone who inherits a cancer can predisposing? Yeah. Okay. Sure. Yep. So uh, the answer is no. So. I tell patients, you know, you're not inheriting the cancer, you're inheriting a predisposition. And the gene that has a mutation, there are a lot of different risks associated with each gene. So, for instance, for breast cancer, the BRCA genes have a very high lifetime risk of breast cancer, up to 85%. There are other genes with a more moderate risk. Um, CHECK2 is one of those newer genes. Maybe doubles the risk of breast cancer, about 24 to 30% over a lifetime. That's still higher than the average person, such that we may change screenings, but... Um, still not as high as, say, BRCA mutation. So the risks vary, um, and it's typically not 100%, but can be quite high. Carolyn, if I may pitch in here for yes, 30 okay, seconds. Yes. And, you know, it's a, ver it's a very, very important point. So we still influence a lot of what our body does and how our body responds by, by outside factors. So, you know, smoking is dangerous. Um, you know, we know that certain foods may have an effect and so forth. So it's a predisposition. But this means we we can also do something. Um, sometimes we don't know what we do, but I, I think um, living a good and healthy lifestyle is also important. And what we know to avoid, I think that's very important, that can be dangerous and can enhance and augment those predispositions. So it doesn't so we can do a lot, and for a lot of the cancers, we simply don't know why they happen. So um, I don't want to leave this conference with, with thinking that we know about every cancer and every genetic defect, and that's all we, we need to look at. Um, we, we're, we're starting to understand what's going on, and I think we, we still have a role how we how we influence our life and how we live our life. And I don't want pa patients to panic and come out there and say, "Oh my God, you know everything is genetic," um, you know. And and um, and if if you have questions, I would also go, you know, I would, you know, discuss it with your physician and and then reach out to your physician. And you know, I tell my patients maybe to avoid those online online tests where they're left alone. So I think it needs to be put into the context by a genetic counselor, by an oncologist, by a primary care physician. Yes, and if I could add to that, too, I, I, I think that um, it, uh, that's a very, very good point, that this gene test uh, does not uh, determine uh, the fate of a person or uh, exactly Correct. what is going to happen with their cancer. Uh, and we have learned this um, in spades as we are uh, now applying advances in uh, stimulating the immune system to a, a whole range of different cancers. Um, the interaction between the genetic uh, influences on the cancer cell and the immune are very complex, uh, and um, we're still learning that. So be very careful that uh, the, the, you look at all the different factors that come into play 
in choosing a treatment for your cancer, in, in determining the outcome for your cancer. Uh, and, and this is something that, that you and your doctor kind of need to do together, kind of look at all the factors that, that play into it. And it's not simply a genetic determination in the cancer or in you. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to weigh in on that, too. Yes, please. Uh, when a field is so new and changing so rapidly, all of us really need to be careful about the information sources that we have and to make sure they're the right ones, fact-based ones, and not just uh, a matter of people who uh, have an axe to grind or sometimes trying to sell a product that is not um, part of the mainstream, it's not been tested. We really have to be careful when things are changing so rapidly uh, to get to the right sources and the right people. That's an excellent point. Um, and um, we do have um, a question from actually one of our online participants, um, and this is for Dr. Chris. Dr. Chris, can somatic mutations evolve over time? For example, um, at one point, NSLS is EGFR type, but then also develop a ALK or other mutation later. Yeah. So, you know, the, we, we are constantly being faced with forces, some we understand and most we don't, that lead to uh, mutations uh, in our DNA. And blessedly, our body takes care of uh, the vast majority of them, and sometimes it doesn't. When you have a cancer cell, the same thing is happening. So if you look at a cancer cell at the start of treatment and then you look at again, uh, one again years later, very often you find that there's a different set of mutations. However, some of the mutations remain true. They, they call them a driver mutation, a truncal mutation. Uh, they stay, uh, stay the same. The other thing that happens is that under the influence of cancer treatment, new mutations emerge specifically to counteract the effects of that uh, treatment. So again, this is one way the cancer cell finds to survive, is it uh, selects for mutations that allow it to live despite that medication. And indeed, new mutations are, uh, do happen. And, and a good example of that is in, in lung cancer, where um, the uh, people that have an EGFR mutation with effective treatment against the EGFR mutation develop another one in the EGFR gene. So that does happen. And, and uh, pointing to the need to retest, too, your doctor may ask you to have another biopsy or another test, and often that is very critical in deciding what is the best treatment when the first treatment has stopped working. And actually, we have, a, a, we have one final question. It is very similar to the question you just answered, Dr. Chris, but I'm going to read it off anyway because there may be some other nuance that is here. When cancer has been treated by a targeted therapy and the, and the therapy stops working, is there a role and what is that role for precision medicine at that point in time to identify new targets and drugs? Dr. Um, Tibbs, do you want to try that one? Yeah, as, as, as Dr. Chris was just alluding to, um, cancer cells find ways around um, treatment and they develop resistance, like they were developing resistance to chemotherapies in the old days, they, they developed resistance to targeted therapies. And there are for different cancers, there are different ways and different round, routes how they develop resistance under the pressure even of the targeted treatments. So it is important to, to retest. Um, we understand for certain cancers, we understand which mutations come up under the treatment pressure or the targeted treatment for others. We don't know. So the precision medicine, you know, it's a, it's a vague 
it's essentially what well, I would say it's a it's a it's a it's a vague terminology. Um, it sometimes uh, upon resistance development we can find other targets, but generally it gets a little harder to find new therapies um, when the cancer cells become more and more resistant. But is but, but sometimes we we find new targets and then we can match new drugs against this new target that comes up um, in, in, in the if, patient. If, if, if I would um, try to end on this on a hopeful note too, that's exactly what happened in, in the setting of these EGFR mutations. Um, once the scientists found what that second mutation is, within six weeks of its discovery and dissemination, more than 30,000 different drugs were tested to see if they'd be effective against that mutation. And now, a few years later, um, there is a drug on the market all over the world, a, a Samaritanib, uh, that can be used for that second mutation. So even something that you, know, you kind of wish wouldn't happen, it does open a door, and it really speeds up the research that um, the pharmaceutical industry and, and scientists can do uh, when you know what that second mutation is. So um, it, it, it is a double-edged sword. Sometimes the cancers are, become very, very complex and we kind of can't figure that out. But sometimes when we find this mutation, it accelerates the research. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's the vision that at some point really patients have serial, so several of those genomic tests along their, their cancer care, and earlier and earlier, so very early on at the first signs that a cancer may try to break out, you do a test again because the tests become more sophisticated, more targeted, and the costs of those tests go down. So we will start, like we have a CAT scan now every two months or every three months, depending which, you know, we may have some some precision medicine tests on an early switch or a combination of two drugs, either upfront or, you know, adding a, a certain drug when a cancer tries to break out to become resistant. I think that's where we are trending. So absolutely. And the, the quicker we do this and the more tissue and the more we learn about it, so it's really the knowledge and the learning and pairing it together with the medication and the drug development, I think that will be the clue to precision medicine. Wow, this is amazing, um, amazing program. I have to say, I I really want to thank all of our speakers. You've been phenomenal. This is, And this has been a wonderful discussion. Actually, frankly, this could go on for quite some time, but I realize that um, also, I realize he had said this would be um, a program defined by a specific type of amount of time. So I know there are more questions in queue and also much more we'd love to discuss. I should say that there are going to be more programs on this topic, so stay tuned. That's one thing I do want to say. Um, and um, although your questions have been answered as of today, um, what we're hearing is that there's lots more to, to look forward to in terms of what the research is showing and what is being developed. Um, I want to thank our speakers. I want to thank all of you who actually um, queued up for questions, both online and on the telephone as well. And um, and I realize many of you um, have still questions, and so I want to first of all um, address your questions. I will then say a few words about cancer care services, and then um, we will um, invite you to participate in a future program. So for those of you who still have medical questions and still don't have an answer to them or want to get more information, we always, of course, recommend that you go to your healthcare team. That's really important. Your treating healthcare team know you the best, of course. And your healthcare team also, of course, um, are a great place to go with even the information you learned today to bring it back to them or help you, to inf help you ask more informed questions or even feel more confident about asking your questions because you know a little bit more information now. You also can listen to these programs again. So I know um, on the... Um, 
one of the people who was participating on the online part had said that she was going to go and listen to the program again because there's a lot of rich material. It's hard to absorb it all in one, one listening. So you can listen to it as a podcast or on telephone replay. It will be up probably within two days. So you can go to our website, and for those of you who register online, you can go ahead and listen to the program again because it was a very interesting discussion that was going on in this program. Um, also, though, um, in addition to healthcare team, we always recommend the National Cancer Institute wonderful resource. Um, they have an 800 number, um, 800-422-6237, but they also have a wonderful website, um, www.cancer.gov, and they have a live chat feature. So for people in the U.S. and all of our international participants, it's particularly helpful because then you can post your question on their live chat feature, and their information specialists will then go through their databases and get you answers to your questions that are very credible, really up-to-date, and very credible information um, for you to have. So that's, that's another resource for you um, to access. Um, we also, um, when you get your evaluation right after today's program, or probably by tomorrow, you'll get the evaluation, um, there will be other resources that, we, that came up during the program today that will be um, posted for you also to have um, access to as well. Um, and, of course, all of our collaborating organizations as well as resources. And for those of you who would like to follow up with services from Cancer Care, so let me just say a word about the services of Cancer Care. Uh, Cancer Care does provide a number of different services provided by our trained, master's level trained oncology social workers. And those services include both practical and financial assistance and counseling services. And the counseling services occur both on the telephone and online. And we also have a number of online support groups, 120 actually online support groups for both people living with cancer and their caregivers. And we also have telephone support groups as well, both on the telephone and online. So for international participants, I know many of you participate in our online uh, support groups and also people in the U.S. like the time because it's, you can post any time of the day or night and our oncology social workers are facilitating those posts and, and, and actively involved in in facilitating those groups, so that's a wonderful resource for you as well. Um, and most importantly, we would not want anyone of you to feel you're alone in coping with with cancer or in, in trying to understand about your cancer or, or in trying to perhaps talk to your child about your cancer or talk to your boss about your cancer or even think about it with yourself or with your friends. We want you to now know that you have a support system available to you through cancer care and through many other resources as well that we'll make available to you. So again, I want to thank you for your participation today, and I want to wish you a very fine day. Thank you all, and um, thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.